This is episode five, taking your intelligence program from good to great with your hosts, Michael and Ryan. You're listening to the Business of Intelligence, a podcast that explores how intelligence serves decision makers beyond the traditional national security audience. Tune in as we connect with some of the world's leading practitioners working at the intersection of business and risk in order to analyze and discuss the field of private sector intelligence. We'll talk about what's working, what isn't, and how intelligence is helping organizations navigate today's global operating environment. Welcome, everyone, to the latest episode of the Business of Intelligence podcast. I'm Ryan, and I'm here with my friend and co-host, Michael. And today's topic is taking your intelligence program from good to great. Now, if this topic sounds a little bit familiar, it is because it is. Back on October 13th, Michael and I were invited to speak on a webinar of the same title by the amazing folks at Topo AI and LifeRaft. So, Michael, we participated in that webinar with Phil Harris, who is chairman and co-founder of Topo AI, Andrew Saluk, who is the director of marketing for Topo AI, and Mary Jane Leslie, or MJ, as her friends call her, of LifeRaft. I know we had an amazing time with Phil, MJ, and Andrew, so really just kudos to them for putting on such a great webinar, and we're extremely grateful that they asked us to participate. I think because we had such a good time, and we know that this is also a very, very relevant topic that's probably you know, never going to go out of style, we thought, why not speak to it again today and maybe illuminate a, a few different thoughts? We've obviously had a couple of weeks to think about this a little bit. There might be some new things that we want to emphasize uh, but this, this time, just the two of us. So that's a little bit of a background and introduction for everyone. I want to start with the most important question, which is for you, Mike. How are you doing? And I thought we were going to be able to hold you down in D.C. for a while, but uh, maybe not. <laughs> hey, Ryan. Hey, everybody. Yes, I'm a bit of a moving target again, temporarily in Rome, doing my reserve duty at the U.S. Embassy. So uh it's great to be back here in Italy. We have an amazing team at the embassy and uh, with some of the Italian army counterparts. So this is kind of like a second home now. So great to be here, but also excited to get back to D.C. at the end of next month going into the Christmas season. Yeah, safe travels. Hope you're having fun. Can't wait to have you back. So what what were your th- initial thoughts just on on the webinar? Anything that you wanted to to sort of share just reflecting back on that? I mean, like you said, I think MJ and Phil and Andrew, they all did a great job. MJ did a really good job, I thought, of keeping the conversation flowing. I really enjoyed because you and I are always talking about our our particular corner of the Intel space. But uh, it was also very enlightening to just hear their inputs from the technology provider side. So uh, it was definitely good riffing with them. Yeah, absolutely. I think we had a really good rapport and there are a lot of good questions. They, they just did a fantastic job. So again, we thought it would be fun to sort of go through this again and maybe highlight a few things. And and obviously not everyone was able to listen in on that webinar on October 13th. So hopefully this gives everyone a chance to sort of dig in and sort of take in, I guess, you know, what we talked about on that day. So Having said that, what we should do, I think, is just let's just go down the list. You know, let's just go through some of these questions that were posed to us. I'll I'll go ahead and get us started. I'll I'll sort of ask these, have you weigh in, I'll jump in. We can just go back and forth really informally and uh, share our thoughts on some of these. So I'm looking at the first one here, and and the first one is really around the idea of intelligence products. So what are the core intelligence products that Intel professionals should produce or consider producing? So what do you think there? Let's start with that one. Yeah, I think the key theme that I definitely hit, and I think both of us for that matter, especially when it came to this question, was the the importance of tailored products for the customer. And when I think back to stakeholders I've had in the private sector, financial services industry, the military intergovernment work. I think every culture or every company rather or organization has its own culture. And it's really important to understand 
how leadership takes in information. We were just talking today with some colleagues how if somebody wants a, a slide, no words, no discussions, no emails, then, then that's the product you give them. If somebody wants a 20-page report with qualitative and quantitative analysis, that's the direction you go. So I'll let you get into some of the specifics that you see, but yeah, I think it's good to go back and forth on this one because there's a lot to unravel. But I think uh, just kicking it off is that know your customer can't be overemphasized. Yeah, I know I know we were on the same page on this one in terms of everything being tailored. I want to talk about a theme that we're going to talk about on future episodes, I know for sure, and one that we've maybe hit on before. But just the idea that intelligence is as a service. It's really a service, an end-to-end service. And so if you think about it in that way, in terms of all the different component parts from beginning to end, you might start thinking of yourself, the practitioner as the product, as opposed to, you know, the, the slide that you just talked about handing over. I think we need to take some emphasis off the, the idea of products because I really don't think that's the main effort here. I think it should be the focus should be on the service uh, for beginning to end. And, you know, you can sort of look at the intelligence cycle, even though that's not it's it's imperfect. We all know it's imperfect. But think about it through the lens of the intelligence cycle, even at the beginning in terms of the planning phase and sort of developing requirements. How good are you at that? You know, how good are you are te- at teasing out the requirements from the decision maker? Your ability to do that and, and that service is really, really valuable. And that's something that you could focus on improving. So, you know, think of intelligence as a service. I think we get too caught up in the idea of the products. But I mean, I completely agree. You know, we have to make sure that we don't do things in reverse and start producing before we tailor it to the customer's needs. But also, having said what I just said, I know there's another reality out there that we have to acknowledge. And in some instances, we know it's not always possible for various reasons that you're going to have that close connection with the customer right away or along the journey. And sometimes you just have to anticipate somebody's needs and take a chance and see if you hit the mark. So if we're talking about that sort of scenario I really love the idea of warning products. You know, I talked about this quite a bit on the webinar. I think warning is a core element of the intelligence value proposition. And I can't imagine an organization that doesn't want to get a heads up on something that might disrupt their people, their operations, their brand, their facilities. So I think anything in the warning space is really important. I think depending on function maturity, products that know, really help you create a demand for what you provide or showcase the breadth and expertise within your function. And that includes people outside of your department. So in a sense here, I think in both instances, what I'm talking about are marketing materials. So what's something that you can send out there that really shows off, you know, shows what you can do, grabs people attention, tells them that they've got something to hear and they need to use you. And then I think anything that's, I don't know, I guess, timely, relevant, actionable, whether that's a situation report in the form of a simple email, or it might be a pretty robust assessment. Again, I think focusing on those qualities of just making sure that you're timely, relevant, and actionable is something to keep in mind as well. So, okay, good stuff. That was the first one. Um, I know we had a really good discussion on that one to kick off the webinar. So let's go on to the next one. This is really interesting. I can't wait to hear what you say about this because... I think you are a very good judge of character. I think you have a really uh, a knack for identifying talent. So what should the role of an intelligence analyst or advisor be? And the follow-up to that is what qualities or characteristics should they bring to an organization? So what do you think there? I think just reflecting back to our previous episodes with Paul Colby and Craig Singleton and discussions you and I have, I really think um, when we say intelligence analysts, it's it's a limiting definition. So I, I always like going with the term advisor. And I think it's it's just trying to find out, going back to tailoring a product to your, your stakeholders or customers is by by being able to fill whatever that role might be. If, if there's a product that's going to help them arrive at better decision making, if, it, if it's something that they need someone to talk through, you know, something I wanted to bring up, and I'm going to bring it up now before I forget, is, 
you know, something that you always say is that intelligence is a contact sport. You know, when I was thinking about preparation for this episode today, I, I was I was reflecting back to one of my deployments where I had, you know, I think, you know, a lot of us live in worlds now where we have multiple stakeholders, but was, was probably, he wasn't my direct one. He was two or two levels above, but I really needed to get his perspective you know, he really did not want to talk to not me personally, but me as the the senior intelligence officer for what I was covering. And, you know, there were really some originally awkward, difficult conversations. You know, he was quite a he's quite a strong willed personality. You know, it really by having some uncomfortable conversations and over time, letting him know what we could bring to the table, our team, and then doing some proof of concepts. And, you know, about, you know, a month or so into our deployment together, he started seeking us out. So, you know, I think sometimes when I'm listening to our podcast, I can see where people are, you know, I've had a couple of people hit me up like great ideas, but it sounds like it's almost impossible to to implement. Uh, you know, I just wanted to stress that that that's definitely, you know, you can definitely have awkward conversations that are productive. Going back to the contact sport, that's something that I think, uh, you know, we should all try to practice better. Yeah, I agree with that. I will just add a couple of things. I mean, I, I loved what Paul talked about in episode two, where he talked about, you know, all the steps of the intelligence cycle, the analyst, and using air quotes, has to do all those steps. So it's it's such a limiting term. So I won't add anything more there. But there are a couple of other things I think we need to think about that we should emphasize and are really sort of underappreciated. So think of the idea of the practitioners being a bridge builder within the private sector. So between different functions. So bringing, bringing functions together, bridging the gap between your department and others because you're working on something together. I think a facilitator is really interesting because that could be internal, but it could also be external. And what really comes to mind are all the teams that have had to pivot or dive into COVID-19 since the pandemic started. And so potentially facilitating the sort of connection between your organization and external expertise that you might not have had within the company, which is probably pretty common. Information broker as well. I mean, sometimes it's not... You know, it's not always about providing really, really insightful, actionable intelligence. Sometimes you're really just giving people some some simple information and intelligence. And I, I shouldn't use those things interchangeably because they're not the same. But sometimes people do just need simple information. And so for, for us to provide that, add some value. And then the other thing I mentioned on the webinar was around alignment. Um, again, there are days where I feel like my job is a chief alignment officer, just trying to get everyone on the same page. You know, if we're working on a project or an assessment or if we're working through an issue, oftentimes we're the ones that seem to have to bring everybody together and get everyone on the same page if we want to be successful and make this happen. So, so those are some thoughts from my perspective. Now, what about the qualities? If you, let's say, yeah, you're building an organization, you're picking a team, you know, what are a couple of things that stand out to you in terms of what you would be looking for in a practitioner? You know, I think sometimes it sounds cliche, but emotional intelligence, I mean, there's so many books and articles out there, but I, I really think it's one of the most critical skills as an Intel professional. It helps you for 360 degree leadership. I mean, you, you really need to understand What's going on with your fellow team members? How uh, how they operate? Learning their baseline and, and understanding if maybe they're having difficulty either with something work related or in life, and then also looking up to stakeholders, just trying to understand how they communicate and how they receive information. And also just being able to read people and understand, okay, maybe this isn't the best time to have this conversation. Maybe if I try to approach a key customer at this particular moment, there's so much activity going on. So just being able to understand those around you. Another one that we, we've talked about before and spoke about with Topo and like we spoke about with them, the, the ability to anticipate trends and Sometimes it can be easier said than done, 
But if you know somebody in a, in a customer's inner circle, you can you can try to elicit or, or just make friends and, and learn about what what might that stakeholder be looking to do. And that way you can you can get ahead of the curve and be able to provide them information as they're trying to figure it out. And that that adds when you can add that that real time value, then then that's a stakeholder is going to want to come back to you. I know things have changed a lot since we were kids, but and I don't know if you remember this, but growing up, especially if you went to a smaller school or you're from a maybe a more rural area, kids played multiple sports a lot of times because they had to have everybody go out for the team in order to field a team. But, you know, back in the day, kids played multiple sports growing up. And I think there's some real value to that. I know I've I've sort of realized that value growing up. And so what am I getting at here? I, I think for me, I'm looking for people that are versatile or multidimensional. And the reason for that is because that's that's honestly what's usually called for in the role. Um, a lot of times you find yourself working on multiple things, even on areas outside of your expertise and where you're asked to take a stretch assignment or you're asked to sort of just help out with the rest of the department. So I think having that versatility is really good, but it also gives you a greater chance to meet a variety of different needs in the business. And it can make you very, very valuable in that way. Um, If you have a large team or if you've developed specific capabilities or expertise to match the needs of the business, then I I would match versatility with the subject matter experts and, and, the relevant subject matter expertise. So I know that there are organizations out there that are looking for subject matter experts. So what I just said doesn't apply to everyone, of course, but I really, really value versatility. And I think others do as well. Entrepreneurial spirit, you know, Craig talked about intelligence as a mindset in episode one, and he really emphasized this. So I won't, I won't talk too much more about this, but you know, I, I think it's really critical taking the approach of running a function like a business, the ability to be resourceful in various ways, being a student of the business. A growth mindset is something that stands out to me. So, you know, I, I think just being part of a professional or part of a profession and being a professional means you're always trying to get better no matter what. And you have to be able to take criticism, which is something that Craig talked about as well in episode one. So I love that. Of course, communicating effectively, both in verbally and in writing. And then this is going to sound a little bit silly and people may laugh, but but critical thinking. Somebody out there is going, well, yeah, duh, of course, (laughs) critical thinking. But I've been surprised, actually. It's more challenging than I think people think. Trying to find somebody who can really put things in a context that's meaningful to your organization. So people can do it. People that have specific expertise can do it on their specific areas of expertise, but then marrying that up with the understanding of the business and and coming out with something that's been contextualized, that's matters for that organization. It's a lot more difficult than I think people realize. So that would be the other one. And I know you wanted to add on here. So go ahead. Yeah, Ryan, those are all great points. The, the the one I wanted to just mention is active listening. You know, I just think throughout my career as an intelligent professional, when I started out, you're trying to find information, you're trying to come up with good products. And, and a lot of times people just can't wait to to tell somebody, hey, here's what I know, here's what can help you. But the reality is it's almost more important as you learn, I think, or I've learned over the years, to, to be an active listener and really hear what people are wanting to say. Let them let them talk, let them get their thoughts out there. You know, try ask them what what the holes or what, what information they need to know is, ask follow-on questions because, you know, again, I think there's sometimes a rush to to tell people what we know where it's arguably more important to listen so you can identify ways to help directly. This may be an unfair characterization, but I think if you're an introvert, then this this can probably play to your strength in, in terms of being an active listener. It's probably sort of in your nature. If you're an extrovert, listen to Michael, <laughs> be, be an active listener. Um, I think it's a mistake that we've all made. And I think we get so invested in these issues and so invested in learning about something that we're passionate about that we do want to show off what we know. We do want to explain everything about the subject and show, 
it, we've got this, you know, we know this and we, we think that that breeds credibility, but I think you're right. Being an active listener is so critical. And I'll, I'll speak to that. I think in a few minutes as well, let's go on to the next one here. I'm just scanning my list and why don't we just stick in order here? So the next question was around providing value and specifically, what are some examples of the Intel function providing business value? And so why don't, I'll give you a little bit of a break and I'll start first with this one. One of the first things that comes to mind and is very timely in the age of a global pandemic is COVID-19. I think we all know that a number of teams have really capitalized and maybe that's the inappropriate word, but have capitalized on the fact that they were able to show what they could do and what they bring to the table by pivoting to working on the global pandemic. And so I, I think that's wonderful. I think that shows that an Intel function is, is really well positioned within an organization and can obviously work across the business as it should. So I know a lot of success stories out there. And so that is obviously one that's timely and that comes to mind. And then beyond that, there's so many. I mean, my wishy-washy answer is it depends. You know, it depends on the organization. I think adopting the mantra of like focus on what matters most to the business or to the organization that's going to allow you to zero in on how you're going to provide the most value. Maybe you can look at it through the lens of, you know, two sides of the coin. One is risk, one is opportunity. So on the risk side, I mean, you could you can inform the business of, you know, at almost every level on all types of decisions around various types of risk. I like to think that no matter what you do, if you're a tech company or a finance company, I like to think that regardless, people are our most important product or our most important asset. And so providing sort of risk analysis around people to me seems like a no-brainer on where you can add value. I talked about warning. We've talked about informing resilience in the form of business continuity and crisis management. But then on the opportunity side, there's there's so many different examples as well. And I think one that comes to mind is leveraging, let's say leveraging data in a way that allows you to optimi optimize the deployment of risk management resources. A lot of departments are resource strapped and need to make the most of what they have. So if you can apply some analysis on how to best deploy those resources, that's a great way to identify opportunity for cost savings. You know, previous episodes, we've, we've talked about looking for potential long-term partners, whether you're entering into a new market or agreeing to a deal, maybe you have a new acquisition. So those are all very big picture sort of examples of, of providing value through the opportunity lens. But what about you? What do you think? No, great points, Ryan. I think, I guess, like two strategic levels of providing business value. I mean, if, if anything you can provide that's going to support a good business decision or prevent a bad one from being made, I mean, it's very broad, but as you were saying, trying to provide information that that is going to help in that process. And then, you know, I, I think even, you know, I'm just thinking a very tactical, local level, anything you can do to add value. So, I mean, if you know somebody who, who's traveling to a new location, I mean, just, you know, hopefully you know them or understand enough of their, their baseline for travel or international experience and just finding a way of, of adding value to that trip, whether they're, you know, it's their first time leaving the country or they're a seasoned traveler who's been all over the world. You might have to provide different information, but, you know, I've known people that were traveling to Mexico and, you know, they spoke Spanish, they've been to Mexico 20 times. For them, I would try to find a specific restaurant where they could have a, a, a good business meeting, impress their client that they were knowledgeable of that area, or just trying to find local fixers who could provide information or resources when they were on the ground. And, you know, even if they didn't use it, just having the knowledge to provide them, it, it built credibility and trust. And if you, if you get a bunch of those little wins put together over time, that's how you can build a strong relationship with your customers. You just reminded me of something. Let's do a, I want to do a quick sidebar because I don't know if this is the right place to get this in or if I, I can get it in later, but when you talked about travel and then Mexico, and I just happened to finish for the second time Narcos on Netflix, which I absolutely love that show. And so the word 
words gateway drug come up to me. And I know maybe it's not the most appropriate analogy here, but travel risk management programs or travel security programs. So in big multinational corporations in the private sector, they have them. And a lot of times it's the foundation or it's, you know, one of the sort of first aspects of building out an intelligence program. I, I can't stress this enough. I feel as if a travel risk management program is the potential gateway drug to so many other things. It's so spread across the business in terms of, you know, who you can connect with, where you can add values you talked about. It's fairly low hanging fruit, as we would say, and it can give you such a wonderful opportunity to then sort of explain to people what you do, but look for other opportunities to open the door to something else. And that's why I call it a gateway drug. So being able to connect with different people throughout the business and then look for those openings to talk about what else it is that you do, how else you can provide value. Hey, would you like to learn about, you know, this other sort of expertise that we bring to the table? So I think for anyone that has a travel risk management program, you can really leverage that and develop a strategy around that program that I think takes you to an even, even higher level. So I'm glad you brought that up, but okay. This next question I think is right up your alley and I can't wait to hear what you say about it, but what types of questions should we be asking our stakeholders and or our customers? I actually think I'm going to start out by using the perfect segue you gave me with travel security, combining what you just said with active listening. It's really critical to understand or learn about who your customers are. So let's just say using the example of traveling to Mexico, if you find out you have a stakeholder who's traveling to Mexico, you really try to want to learn what their baseline knowledge is of travel, the culture, the country, because if you send them a very generic package or ask very broad questions, you're just going to probably end up annoying them or, or putting them off where if you ask them and they say, Hey, I've never been to Mexico before. I know nothing about it. I've read some bad news articles. Then you start asking questions about the specific type of travel they're going to do, personal or business, urban setting or rural. And you start asking very specific tailored questions. Uh, we always say the, the five W's, who, what, where, when, why, and how, plus H. And just really asking those questions. And I think over time, when you, when you get used to this kind of, in the public sector, they call it debriefing. But the more you keep asking those questions until you almost get to a point where there's there's no other there's no other way to answer it all the information has been provided then you can tailor a product exactly to that person but you know i, I think it is so critical because i've spoken to people in travel security programs and sometimes there's there's been a, a less than overwhelming response to the product. And I think a lot of times, just from my own experience, I think it goes back to where the product wasn't tailored enough. You know, going to, and then just building off the five W's plus H, you know, when you're, whenever you're talking to anyone, especially when you're trying to get information from the stakeholders, you really got to try to explain to them what the benefit is of them, what the benefit is for them to speak with you. So by them speaking to you, you're providing specific information tailored to what they need to get them safe and productive travel or whatever the problem set we're working on. So we could probably go a whole episode on that. But I think I hit the key points I want to talk about now. Yeah, I, th I think you're right. I think there's definitely another episode or two in there. And just in terms of the concept of time, I mean, time is our most precious commodity or resource probably anywhere, but definitely in, in the private sector or in the business world when you're thinking about engaging with decision makers. So I love all the points that you made. I don't have much to add. I mean, I'll just add a couple of things, I guess, at a high level, and then we'll move on to the next one. But when I think about types of questions to ask our stakeholders or key customers, I think broadly in terms of what are some clarifying questions, you know, for things that they're already interested in. So what I mean by that is, you know that they want something or you're going to deliver something to them. And so how do you sort of refine that initial requirement to make sure that you get, you're going to give them exactly what they need, clarifying deadlines, clarifying how they would like to receive it, 
oftentimes they might not actually be asking the right question. And so you might need to reposition that question just a little bit to get them to the point where they're like, oh yeah, that you're right. That is what I was looking for actually. So I think clarifying questions on things that they're already interested in. I think probing questions to gauge their interest on things that you think they should know about, but they haven't asked about yet. And I find this very common in the private sector, which I'll, I'll get to in just a second. So, you know, what else are they not thinking about, but you think they might be interested in or find value in? So just probing a little bit in that way. And then the third one is just questions that generate feedback and preferably often and not at the very end when you actually deliver what you're going to deliver. Ideally, too, you're delivering value all along the way of the service and not just at the very end with some sort of, let's say, final PowerPoint, but you're delivering things incrementally along the way. And as you do that, you know, you're asking questions around feedback. Is this hitting the mark? Am I on the right path? Has your timeline changed, et cetera? But going back to what you've said a couple of times, I think is really important, which is don't forget to anticipate requirements or needs. I think this has been one of the most, how should I frame this? This is one of the, this has been one of the biggest sort of adjustments or sort of realizations, if you will, by moving into the private sector is that you're not necessarily going to have somebody anticipate this clear, concise requirement up front all the time. A lot of times you find yourself trying to anticipate what it is that they need and then helping them refine that. And so that's, to me, that's an art. It's it's really important and heavily used in the private sector. And again, we could probably have another episode on, on just that as well. So, but great stuff. Okay. The next one I think is also near and dear to your heart as you've worked on making this transition and uh, from the public to the private sector. And as we talked about on the last episode, I've never seen someone be so thoughtful and deliberate and thorough. So Again, I, I'm interested to hear your take on this, but because I know you're into this, but what aspects of your business should you research or understand in order to provide more value as an Intel practitioner? Yeah, sure, Ryan. Definitely coming from a business background in finance, I definitely kind of geek out a bit on the understanding the operations of the companies. I think whether you're in the government, the private sector, or the public or the, the military, you know, you really need to understand the organization you're in. So kind of touching on a career transition. I mean, you know, so I think most of us all know if you're, you know, if you're going to interview for a job, you really need to understand the company, have an idea of its mission, its vision statement, different operating units. But, you know, I, me personally, I always think once you secure the, the interview and land the job, that's really, you know, especially from a risk or intel or security perspective, it's almost that's when the research really should begin. You know, with just some recommendations I'll throw out there is, you know, doing, you know, you don't have to go crazy in the quantitative understanding, but at least kind of know what the main revenue generating sections of your company or organization are. Good place to start is your company's, if it's a publicly traded company, it's annual report. I was looking at some earlier today and, you know, you, you know, at a minimum, you really want to look at the operations and business segments part and also the risk factors. And, you know, from an Intel perspective, I mean, the company has to lay out the key risk factors. So you could use that as your strategic guidance and then just start to work with your team and your other stakeholders within the greater risk space and try to start figuring out where exactly you and your team fall within those risk factors where you can help. You know, I think going a little deeper, just to understand your stakeholders and especially the, the business units. And, you know, a big way to do it is people are busy. So I understand this, this doesn't always work out. But one thing to definitely pursue is to ask whether you can shadow somebody, you know, even if it's not for a full day, but, you know, if you can actually spend some time with someone and just show an honest interest in what they're doing from the business perspective, you'll, you know, and, and while you're listening to them, you can elicit information, use your active listening skills and really start to understand what drives that that person's requirements and it, it'll it'll start over time build trust and also help you fill in a lot of the gaps 
Actually, I'm just going to double check and see if I actually did write some notes for that particular question. And then, oh, yeah. And then just uh, and then, you know, let's just say McDonald's or or uh, Cluck You or any kind of food entity, you know, just really whatever the industry is digging into what the digging into what the uh, podcasts are out there, or the professional journals and just trying to understand the greater industry for example, I, I listen to I listen to several different industry podcasts, read the journals, read parts of the Wall Street Journal, and then follow those companies online, different po- um, different forums. So the more you can learn about the company, the business, and the industry it opens, the more value you're going to add. Yeah, those are all those are all great points. I think let me just think about what I want to add and and try to unpack a little bit of what you talked about. So I think. For-profit organizations, you know how the organization makes money, broadly speaking, is is one of the things you were talking about, and I couldn't agree more. And obviously, looking at those risk factors that you talked about, I think is a great starting point. Then I think you can dive a little bit deeper once you get through those. If you're a nonprofit, not a profit, you can find out. Think about finding out your organization's center of gravity. So that, you know, for anybody who's worked in counterinsurgency, maybe in the government or the military, you, that might that term might be a flashback for you. But the source of power, if you will, of that organization, what is it? Is it its brand? You know, is it a huge brand? Is it its people? Is it a particular product? So what is the center of gravity of, of your organization or your the source of power, if you will, for your organization? think about starting there, understanding what that is. And then I think that's going to help you sort of outline, you know, what you might want to focus on as a starting point, or at least we'll give you some ideas on where you can add some value. But I I think I closed the webinar last time in talking about this as, you know, my sort of last or final word, but the, the culture of the organization and how things get done. This is where I think you really need to research the most once you get into the organization, because it's going to be, I think, the driving factor behind your strategy of, of building or running a function. And there's a couple of questions that you can always ask yourself when you're looking at the business as a whole or when you're dealing with a particular, let's say, business unit or even at the customer level or stakeholder level and just ask yourself, is this person or is or is my organization one that takes a proactive approach to risk management or is the person that I'm dealing with or my organization as a whole one that's decided we're going to be reactive and essentially throw the kitchen sink at a problem when it occurs? And I think a lot of people have a better sense of what that answer is after having gone through COVID. So I think asking those two questions Do I have a proactive organization or am I in an organization that's reactive and tries to fix things after the fact? Knowing that matters a lot because it can help you determine whether you're going to invest heavily in, let's say, providing early warning or identifying emerging risk or horizon scanning versus after the fact sort of services that you can provide like sense making of what happened or investments in resilience so that's so I would just add that there. And then the other thing that I didn't talk about on the webinar, I think when you're talking about understanding your business and what you should research or understand, do a stakeholder mapping exercise. So in order to understand the business, you have to understand your people and who are going to be your potential stakeholders that are going to champion you and or your customers. So conduct a stakeholder mapping exercise every year. Identify who those people are. Who can champion you? Who do you want to target, so to speak, in building connections with? What do your customers look like? And you can really build a year, a yearly strategy around that, I think, along with some other things, of course. But I think that's a key component. So I'll stop there. Let's take a look at this next one. I don't think we talked about this on the webinar. So you let me know if you want to skip over this one or if there you have anything to add, but it's the question around balancing time or how do you balance time between activities like producing daily briefings and analyzing the future decisions the organization will need to make. So what do you think? Do you want to, do you have anything on that one or should we just keep moving? 
The only comment I'll say is just going back to like knowing what the customer wants. Don't, you know, like we talked about in our episode, Paul Colby, don't be making products just for the sake of making them. Make sure that when you're doing your, your stakeholder tree, that people are actually really demanding those products and you're using your time wisely. Yeah, good. I, I thought you might bring up Paul, which I think is a great call. I, I don't have a lot to add here. So why don't we move on to the, the next one, which I think is a really exciting one. So what are forward-looking teams doing now? What are forward-looking practitioners doing now? So what do you what do you think? I think right now, especially especially in the wake of COVID, just teams are really trying to figure out how to anticipate demands, trying to get ahead of the curve and doing some planning from an agility standpoint. Because when I say that, I think communication is one of the keys. So I think we all learned during COVID, you know, especially us on the government military side where I was at the time, that communication is critical. I think sometimes we we're used to the older systems and this kind of forced us to really adapt. So I think I think the the forward leaning teams now are really staying on top of that and figuring out what communication to use now and going forward. I also think uh, one other thing I'll throw out there, it's kind of near and dear, is uh, something we always talk about is retention. Especially now, August, I think was the it was something like the the most people most people left their jobs than ever before in U.S. history, and most places or a lot of places are, are experiencing labor shortages. So, you know, and it's just like whether you're a pro sport team or an intelligence team, when you're trying to build for the future, you really – one of the things you're putting a lot of time into training, acquisition, onboarding. So the longer you can kind of keep that team together, the more potential you have to excel and the more – you have to keep turning over and train new people. It's a drain and never lets you reach your full potential. Yeah, the great, the great resignation, right? <laughs> so I, I want to talk about training. I, I think when I started thinking about this question initially, the first thing that popped to mind was like emerging technologies or what in terms of forward looking teams, like what's the new cutting edge sort of methodologies or technologies that people are using. But I think after having gone through the pandemic, teams are starting to realize, hey, we can provide decision support on issues that cut across the entire business, you know, not just our own department. And this is a theme that we've talked about quite a bit um, throughout the podcast, but you can support a range of issues. So something in the, let's say the ESG space would be a great example, environmental, social, and corporate governance. Um, I think there's really no limit you know, Paul sort of alluded to this when, when he spoke to us a few episodes ago. But issues that cut across the business, I think forward-looking teams are working on those. I think forward-looking teams are working cross-functionally in most cases, which has a lot of different benefits. And then you talked about training. I think training and development. I know that doesn't sound like something that's forward-looking, but it's just so difficult because... Everyone is so busy these days. And before you know it, you look up and months and months have passed and you feel like you've just been putting out fires, you know, at some point. But forward thinking teams, I think, are really thoughtful about carving out time to train. They're very strategic about it. And as you said, I mean, train and develop people equal happy people and happy people equals business continuity. And business continuity is critical to reaching long-term goals and strategies for your function. And I think that's especially important for small to mid-sized teams. So I would completely agree there. So, okay. I know we wanted to get this under an hour. So we've got a few questions left. Why don't we just do one or two? I think we can get two in. And why don't we talk about plans? So this next one, what should the one-year two-year or five-year plan look like? Are there any guideposts? And I know you had some really interesting things to say about this on the webinar. So I'll, I'll let you kick things off here. Okay. Yeah. Just uh, in the interest of time, I think uh, I'll do the one year and then let you do the, the next one. I think the one year, we kind of hit some points uh, throughout this conversation. But the most critical thing, if you're starting a team or you're new to a team, is building trust and credibility. And the way to do that is is to 
is to show that you're competent, show that you understand the, the company and the industry you're in, how cross-functionality can play a part inside your organization. Also, starting to, starting to do proof of concept initiatives. So, you know, real quick, back to the, uh, that, one, that one stakeholder I had who was not necessarily a fan of the Intel process. It was just showing him very small incremental steps on how we could help him achieve his, his short, medium, and long-term goals. And methodically, as a team, building on that every day and just showing how we were advancing the, the the particular intelligence package we were working on. And over time, within a couple of weeks, he saw how professional it was. He started seeing it confirmed from different other different organizations. And suddenly we we started getting buy-in. So, you know, I guess in summary, earning trust, the way to do that is proving that you can add value and then taking those incremental gains and moving them forward. And over time, you can expand your capabilities. Yeah, I, I like that. I mean, I didn't I didn't honestly have a, a, a lot to add. I mean, to be quite honest, I don't like the idea of developing five-year plans. I think that's too long of a time horizon for a function like intelligence. But um, I'll just say a couple of things. First, there's no one size fits all. That's the bottom line up front. It has to be tailored to the organization and your team. I think what immediately comes to mind for people is, oh, we want to expand our capabilities and our services and thus grow our team to match, you know, gain more customers, et cetera, et cetera. But I, I would just caution everyone. I think we have to be careful about always thinking expansion and instead just think about quality over quantity and think about doing the highest level work possible to get the most job satisfaction, to retain the talent that you have, et cetera. So in terms of guideposts, just a couple I'd share real quickly. You know, I think I talked about running your function like a business, which surprise, that's, you know, that's why we named this, the, uh, the, <laughs> this podcast, the business of intelligence, but asking yourself, what are those component parts to running a business and then analyzing each one. So for example, How are you going to create long-term demand for your function? What service offerings can you provide and where would you like to expand? How are you going to market those services internally? You know, what's the competition? Because, you know, even if you're an in-house intelligence function, you have competition. There's no doubt. You're, You're competing with other resources, other organizations, if you will, for the time and intention of decision makers. I think it's critical to articulate a vision. If you don't have a vision for your function, then I'm not sure how you can develop a roadmap that follows. And then you've hit on this a number of times already, Michael, but having the talent to match whatever your plan is in terms of business continuity is very important. I know I've, I've, seen, I've seen some mistakes made and uh, you know I think I've done this myself where you may have a plan or a strategy or a vision, but if you don't have the personnel to match that, then you're not going to be successful. So, okay, let's focus on one more and we'll wrap this up in under an hour. Let's focus on this one because I know we were talking about this before we came online, but just the idea of moving beyond crisis response. So just in about a minute or so, what are your thoughts on moving beyond crisis response? We know the pandemic's not over yet, obviously, but any lessons learned or, or what's next for intelligence functions? I think no matter whether you're private sector, military, government, I think it's really more important ever now to, to kind of see through the noise or hear through the noise and, and understand what is the key focus. And I think sometimes as Intel professionals, you you kind of alluded to it earlier, really want to be the sheepdogs and find out as much information as we can about everything and anything. And, you know, we almost become inundated ourselves with information. And then sometimes we might actually over provide information to stakeholders and it's almost it overwhelms them. It, it, It it tires the team. So really, really getting past crisis mode. I think you have to start doing some of the other things we talked about in trying to anticipate what's really critical to the stakeholders, use an active listening to get that, and then starting to come up with whether it's some kind of early warning products or very tailored geopolitical travel analysis, whatever it is your team's focused on. 
Yeah, I love all that. I, I think those are all great points. I mean, from my perspective, we had talked earlier about how we've heard about all these successes that teams have had pivoting to, to COVID-19, or if they didn't pivot, you know, just make, just adding value, providing intelligence support to crisis management. So the things that stand out to me looking beyond this particular crisis response how can we capitalize on this opportunity and the momentum that we have from supporting the organization? It's a big, big opportunity, whether this was normal business for you or you were forced to pivot and do this for the first time or it was new to you. Thinking about that momentum, I think it does underscore the importance of having a vision and some sort of plan. Maybe it's not a five-year plan. Maybe it is. But we have to be good opportunity spotters, right? We have to know when the timing is right to find a new way to add value, a new capability, a new area of expertise. We can't let this fall by the wayside. And if an opportunity presents itself for new resources or um, maybe new personnel, if you're not ready for that, if you haven't thought through that already, then you might find yourself at a disadvantage and, and worst case scenario, you lose the opportunity. You know, I guess bottom line is just developing a plan on how to capitalize and, and move beyond crisis response. So, you know, meeting with potential customers or key stakeholders as a follow up. Hey, we were able to support you during this crisis in this particular area. But guess what? We can do a lot of other things and here's what we can do. And we think we can help you in this way. And that's a great way to, I think, gather support for new initiatives with COVID-19 as the background. And just everyone, do not let the momentum fade. Don't don't let the opportunity go by the wayside um, because a lot of you, most of you probably out there listening have put in a tremendous amount of time and effort and work in what is one of the most significant events of our lives. So why not take advantage of it and show what you can do down the road as well? So there you have it, everyone. That was taking your intelligence program from good to great. We know not everyone was able to listen in to the webinar with Topo AI in the middle of October. Once again, just on behalf of Michael and I, we want to thank Phil Harris, who's the chairman and co-founder of Topo AI, Andrew Saluk, who's the director of marketing there, and of course, Mary Jane Leslie or MJ from LifeRaft, who moderated that discussion. We can't thank you enough for your support and for the opportunity. But it was such a fun discussion. We wanted to come back and sort of highlight those key points again and Michael, as always, I appreciate your insights, your expertise. It's always good to learn and listen from uh, listen to you. Until next time, stay safe, my friends. Have fun overseas. I look forward to you coming back <laughs> to the D.C. area. And uh, we'll talk to everyone soon. So bye, everyone. Bye, everyone. Thanks, Ron. Bye.